0: Well, as Ben did mention, we are starting a new sermon series on Exodus 2. If you do look in the um, bulletin, you'll see, though, or the book of Exodus, you'll see that we actually are picking up in Exodus 2, and he alluded to why we're doing that. Exodus is incredibly long, and so for us to fit it into 15 or 16 weeks, we're going to be primarily focusing on the life of Moses and just kind of look at his experiences in Exodus as well as in Numbers a little bit. And what this is allowing us to do is to cover kind of large swatches of Scripture, in a very uh, limited and shorter amount of time. And so the question is, well, why are we studying Exodus and why are we studying the Old Testament in general? And this has just been a rotation that we've done for 20 years here at Hope. What we do is we will do a New Testament gospel, a New Testament epistle, we'll do an Old Testament book, and then we'll do a short topical series, which we just finished up. And then previous to the topical series, we looked at the book of Hebrews. And before that, we looked at the Gospel of John. So now it's the Old Testament's turn back in the rotation. But uh, another reason we are studying Exodus this week or these next few weeks is that we've never done it before. In 20 years here at Hope, we've never done a sermon series on the Exodus. And so that's another reason. But I guess the question really remains, why study the Old Testament at all? Because I know for a lot of people to think it's, kind of antiquated. It's multiple, multiple thousands of years old, and what can it possibly offer us today? But I will tell you, there is real benefit in studying the Old Testament because we have these pictures and these stories that are given to us. Here's what I mean. In the New Testament, we're primarily given principles, principles about the gospel, principles about how we live. And in the Old Testament, we actually see pictures of these principles. For example, a lot of the New Testament writers tell us that God's people are exiles or they're not from home or they're not in their home. They're displaced. A lot of people say that we're God's holy nation, That we, and we've been told that as God's people we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. In the book of Exodus, we have pictures and stories of people that are in actual exile, people that are actually God's holy nation, and their story of redemption and rescue. So in a very real sense, the Old Testament takes the principles that we are given in the New Testament, and it brings them to life. It gives them faces, names, experiences. They are essentially real-life case studies. But at the end of the day, we study this book because this book is both about us, but ultimately and primarily, it's about Jesus, The Exodus is not only our past as God's people, but it's also our present as well as our future. As Anglican priest Alistair McGrath points out, the Exodus tells our story. Each of us has a personal journey to make from our own Egypt to our promised land. We have left something behind in order to make this journey. We have had to break free from our former lives in order to begin afresh. We were in Egypt. We were delivered from bondage. We are in the wilderness, on our way to the promised land. The story of Exodus involves us because it is about us. Chuck DeGroat in his book, Leaving Egypt, points out, Are we not all slaves? The Exodus journey is for each and every person. We all need a liberator, a savior. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about something as we begin, and I'm assuming it's probably something that we're going to come back to over and over again throughout this series. But my question for you is this, what are you enslaved to? Let me ask it again, what are you enslaved to? And as you consider this question, I want us to get some background on the enslaved people that we're going to look at over the next few weeks from Exodus, so the question is, how did the Israelites end up in Egypt in the first place? And we're told a story at the end of Genesis, and it's one that you may know, that there was a man named Joseph, and he was the son of Jacob, Abraham's great-grandson. And when Joseph was a boy, his brothers were jealous of him, and so they faked his death, and they sold him into slavery. And he went to slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph garnered a lot of respect and favor and eventually was moved from a slave to the second in command in Egypt. He was his, their prime minister. He oversaw Egypt's collection of, and storage of grain in anticipation of this great famine that God told Joseph was coming. When the famine struck, his brothers who believed Joseph to be dead came to Egypt from Canaan to buy grain so that they wouldn't starve. And unknowingly, they spoke to their brother, asking him for grain. They did not recognize him. And eventually, Joseph identifies his identity to his brothers. In Genesis 45, this is what we're told. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he went on to say later that what you intended for evil, God used for good. And eventually they settled into Egypt in the area of Goshen, but not as slaves, but as a free people, flourishing, enjoying the benefits of living in the world's greatest superpower with the world's greatest economy. But as Exodus begins, we begin to see the unraveling of Israel's 400 years in Egypt, What started as just a nation of 70 people has grown quite a bit, to say the least. And this is what we're told in verse 8 of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." "'Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with with heavy burdens. "'They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. "'But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. "'And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, "'so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, "'and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the Egyptians put the Hebrews to work as slaves in hope of stopping their population growth, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So the king came up with a new idea. He went to two Hebrew midwives and he told them to to kill all of the male Hebrew babies, thinking that If they could eliminate the men, the males, from um, Israel, eventually they just would be assimilated into the Egyptian culture, eradicating them altogether. But the two women feared the Lord, and they let the babies live. When Pharaoh went to them and said, why didn't you do what I asked them to do? This was their response, and I love it. They said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. And so we're told at that point, God blessed these two women, and they had families of their own. But then finally, Pharaoh came up with his final solution, that if any male babies were born to the Jews, they were to be thrown into the Nile. And so slavery, genocide, this is what's going on, and this is how the stage is set for the arrival of Israel's Redeemer, for the arrival of Moses. Moses. And this is the passage that we're looking at this morning. This is where it picks up in chapter 2. We're told that there's a Levite man and a Levite woman who marry and conceive a child. And after she gave birth to the baby, the woman looked at her baby baby boy and saw that he was good, or some other translations say beautiful and others say healthy. And she kept him in hiding for three months. When she realized that she could not keep him quiet any longer... In order to spare his life, she got a papyrus basket, waterproofed it, placed the baby in the basket, sealed it, and then placed it in the reeds on the bank of the Nile. The baby's older sister followed behind at a distance to see exactly what would happen to her baby brother. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile. One of her servants saw the basket and brought it to the king's daughter. And when she opened it, she saw that the baby was crying. And she had compassion on the baby. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew's boys. So at that point, the baby's sister came over to the princess and said, hey, why don't I go find somebody to nurse this baby for you? And so the princess said, yes, go find somebody. And so the older sister brought back the baby's mother. And the princess told the woman, take the baby, nurse him, and I will pay you to do so. And so the baby is back with, her mother, with his mother who is now being paid to raise her own son. A few years later, the woman returned the boy to the princess and he became her son. And we're told that she named him Moses, which means I drew him out of water. So fast forward 35 to 40 years and Moses, as a grown man, obviously goes to visit his people and he saw their forced labor. One day he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Israelites And it said that looking to and from, he saw that nobody was there. And so he killed the Egyptian and then buried his body in the sand. The very next day, he went back and he saw two Hebrew men struggling. And he said to the aggressor, why are you fighting your brother? As to which the man replied, who made you prince and commander over us? What are you going to do? Kill me just like you killed the Egyptian. And so Moses knew that his secret was out. And as soon as Pharaoh found out, he wanted him dead. But Moses fled to Midian where he would spend the next 40 years as a nomadic shepherd. And as our passage comes to an end, end, he sits on a rock next to a well. Now that is quite the story. And if you really pay attention to all that's going on, it's pretty amazing. But here's something that is even more amazing when you realize that you and I have the same story. As to which you're hearing me say that and you're probably thinking, yeah, no, right? None of that stuff has ever happened to me before. But here's the thing. Our heart's default is to be enslaved to something. Think about this. Initially, Egypt was not a bad place for the Israelites. It was a very good place, as a matter of fact. It ensured the survival of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers and led to the establishment of the nation of Israel. Egypt initially was a really good thing, but in the end, it was slavery. And so let me ask you that, this, are there things in your life that started out really good and maybe even life-giving, but eventually you've become enslaved to them? Maybe you finally have the job that you've always wanted, but now that you have it, you're a workaholic driven and captured, enslaved by the demands of the work. Maybe it's a relationship that you've always wanted, but now that you are in it, you are so afraid of losing it that you will do anything to stay in it, compromising your morals and sexual ethics. Maybe it's the hope of having children of your own, but then you have kids and now you find yourself wanting to control everything about your kids, terrified of losing them to the outside world. Or maybe it's some vice that you have, that you turn to, that initially you it brought you relief and distraction from your hurt, pain, and confusion, but now you realize that you aren't so sure that you can't live without it. I mentioned De book, Leaving Egypt, and he tells a story about a coworker. And he said that this coworker and his wife used to spend just huge amounts of time on Facebook. And every night they would go home and they would sit in the same room. They wouldn't talk to each other, but they just would be on Facebook all night long, chatting with old friends, uploading pictures, and providing updates on their lives. One evening they got back from work and their internet was down. And so they frantically started to search for another network, um, but it was all done in vain. They were not able to find one. He said that he, uh, the co-worker told Chuck that he said, I could feel my heart beginning to race a bit. He said that his wife went over and began to do the dishes, silent and clearly irritated. And then he said it dawned on his friend. And he said to his wife, we are addicts. We're addicted to this thing. Look at us. We're anxious, angry, irritated, trying to find something to fill the void. And his friend pointed out that even good things even normal things, even ordinary things, can do the same thing um, physiologically and psychologically on a much smaller level as severe addictions. Our disposition and our natural leaning is to take the good things in our lives and turn them into the ultimate thing. And in doing so, we become enslaved by them thinking that we would almost rather die than lose the thing that has turned into your taskmaster, ordering your entire world. But here's the thing we have to realize about the things that we're enslaved to. These idols that we carry around in our hearts, like the Egyptian slave drivers, they demand blood. And they are relentless. So back to my original question, what are you enslaved to? But here's the good news. Even in our slavery, we are not alone. God is present. He is moving. And as we are going to see in the Exodus, he alone makes the way out of our slavery for us. Even if your circumstances don't lead you to that conclusion, you can know that he is there. You know what's amazing? I was struck by this this week. In the first two chapters of Exodus, God is rarely mentioned. He isn't mentioned at all in chapter 2 until the last three verses starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I absolutely love what is being said there? God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that he forgot promises that he made in years past, but what it means is that he decided to act on the promises that he had made for his people to become a great nation and to give them land to establish their people. He saw the people of Israel and he knew. God knew. Even though God's name is noticeably absent in the first two chapters of Exodus, his presence presence clearly isn't. God knew. He knew exactly what he was doing. Think about it this way. Think back to Genesis. God allowed Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery, into Egypt. Why? So that Joseph could go to Egypt eventually become the second most powerful man in the country. Why? So he could give his family food. So they could come to Egypt and not starve. God caused the Pharaoh at the time to have compassion on Joseph's family and allow them to come and settle in Egypt. Why? So that the 70 people in in this family and in this nation could grow and enjoy the resources and abundance of Egypt and flourish into a great nation. Even in slavery, in oppression and hardship, when God's people felt abandoned, they were not. God allowed the male babies to be killed. And in doing so, Moses' mother put him in a basket in the Nile, then to be discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, who then allowed Moses' mom to raise him and then eventually go back to the princess. Well, why? Because in order for Moses to deliver his people out of slavery, he had to be one of their own. In the years before Moses would have returned to be the son of Princess, he would have heard the stories. The stories of Adam and Eve, the flood and the deliverance of Noah and his family in the ark. He would have heard about Abraham and Isaac, about how God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only only son, but then stopped him by providing a ram in the thicket. He would have heard about the promises that God made to his people. He would have heard about his nation's history, about Joseph and his brothers. But at the same time, Moses needed to grow up the son of a princess. The first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen, in his famous speech in Acts 7, said this about Moses. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds, The only place that could have happened for a Hebrew boy was in an Egyptian court. God was equipping Moses through the Egyptians to do battle against the Egyptians. At that time, Egypt had the most advanced education system in the world. He would have studied astronomy, mathematics, language, medicine, and more. Moses had to learn these very things so that he could know who he was dealing with. For Moses to lead his people, he had to have a Hebrew heritage. And to battle the Egyptians, he needed the wisdom and education of the Egyptians that he never would have gotten in forced labor. Even in his 40 years of exile in Midian after killing the Egyptian, God was in control. He was moving and he was humbling Moses. In Numbers 12, we're told that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth which is a little ironic given the fact that Moses wrote Numbers, or at least a portion of it. But the humility that is talked about for Moses could not come in the luxury of an Egyptian palace. It would have come from 40 years of being a nomadic shepherd. And why did God want Moses to become a shepherd? Because as the prophet Isaiah tells us, "...then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people." Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? That would never happen in Egypt. Because as we are told in Genesis 46, when, the Pharaoh, when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So I know that was a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. But here's my point. Even when it seems that God is absent, he is not. Jesus himself told us that his father is always working. And if you pay attention to the details leading up to the Exodus, you will see that he absolutely was. Maybe behind the scenes, but he was working nonetheless. Now, I don't have time to get into this today, but this is something that I've really enjoyed looking back at in my own life. Paths that I've gone down to get me to where I am today. Decisions that I made or that were made for me to get me to where I am today. Many of which I would not have chosen for myself. Moves that we have made that were really hard. Job changes that were so difficult. Periods of loneliness for our family, but looking back in hindsight, I can see that they absolutely needed to happen. And as I reflect back, the things that potentially I needed the most in my life to happen were the most painful. Author Wendell Berry wrote on this very thing. He said, Often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I have had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I have received better than I have deserved. Often my f- uh, fairest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I am an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time, looking back, I have been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that what you will. And this is why Paul could write a letter to a group of Christians suffering greatly under the oppression of the cruel Roman king Nero Nero excuse me and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose notice what he said there all things not some things not just the good things not even just the bad things but all things And what that means for us is that things are not spinning out of control, even if you are suffering, even in your pain, even in your heartbreak. heartbreak, Just like the Hebrews, God hears your groaning. He remembers his covenant. He sees you, and God knows. He knows. He knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. He knows your joy, your laughter. He knows your face. God knows everything about you, everything, even the parts that are the most broken. You know, I mentioned earlier that God gave us the book of Exodus. The reason that we are studying the book of Exodus is because it is our story. But ultimately, the life of Moses and the Exodus is about Jesus Christ. The very purpose of... For the life of Moses is to point us to Christ, the true and better Moses. Because as we are told at the end of Luke, as Jesus was talking with some of his disciples, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the the things concerning himself. Think about it this way. Moses was born in a genocide. So was Jesus King Herod, at the time of the birth of Christ, ordered that all the newborn babies were to be killed. And in Matthew 2, an angel appears to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and says, in order to escape the persecution, you need to flee. And guess where they had to flee to? They had to flee to Egypt. Moses wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was taken into the wilderness for 40 days and was tormented and tempted by Satan. Moses chose to leave the comfort of an Egyptian palace to become a nomadic shepherd. Jesus Christ willingly left the comforts and riches of heaven. And as he told us to become the good shepherd, and like Moses, he had no place to lay his head. In Exodus 2, we, say, we see Moses identifying himself with God's people in their suffering in order to bring them salvation. Jesus Christ has done the same thing with us entering into our suffering to free us from our slavery to sin. And how did he do that? How did Jesus do that? In much of the same way that Moses did. He suffered. Like Moses, Jesus was broken. Moses was broken by murdering a man when no one around. Jesus was broken by being murdered on the cross for all to see. Hebrews tells us that God accomplished our salvation through the sufferings of Christ. And then the author goes on to make this amazing statement where he said that because we are united to Christ in his suffering, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We are siblings to the great Redeemer. We are brothers and sisters to our Savior the God of the universe. Moses condescended to, jo- to join his brothers, the Hebrews, which points to the greatest condescension, when God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came down to us so that we might go up to him and become members of his own family. And let me tell you, your brokenness does not disqualify you from that reality. As actor John Wayne so famously said, that life is tough, and it's even tougher if you're stupid. But let me tell you, our stupidity and our mistakes do not get us kicked out of the family. Again, Moses was a murderer. And all throughout the book of Exodus, we are still going to see that he has these brilliant flashes of anger. We aren't really told anything about the first 40 years of Moses' life, but I can only imagine the lifestyle he enjoyed as a wealthy prince in a pagan nation with everything and everyone available to him. But we are told in Exodus 33 that God would talk to Moses face-to-face as one speaks to a friend. Moses was a friend of God. And how is that? Despite all of his mistakes, what made Moses a friend of God? Well, we are told in Hebrews 11... By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the great reward. And you and I need to do the same. If we consider the reproach or scorn of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of this world, if we look to Jesus as our ultimate reward, just as Moses did, then we too can be friends of God. And let me tell you, that is freedom. That is the greatest freedom in all of the world. But make no mistake, we will suffer reproach for his sake. Moses did. Even Jesus did. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have suffering. But he tells us, take heart, I have overcome the world. It was in Moses' suffering that he redeemed God's people. It was in Jesus' suffering that he redeemed us. And it's in our suffering that we are going to experience our redemption. But know this, you are not alone in it. But how can you know that for sure? How can you know that we won't be alone? Because the Israelites were not alone in their time of suffering. God was moving. He was orchestrating his plan for their salvation, even if they couldn't see it happening. So we can know the same will be true for us. But more than that, we have an even greater assurance and we can know that we will never be alone in our suffering because when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, And he prayed to his heavenly Father, Father, please make another way. You can do anything. Please do something other than this. Do you know how his prayer was answered? With silence. Complete silence. Not a peep. And then dying on the cross to bring about our salvation, suffering for our sake. He was utterly alone. He prayed to his God, Father, where are you? Don't leave me. Why have you forsaken me? And God turned his face away. And the reason he turned his face away from his own son is that you can know that he will never turn his face away from you. Never. But instead, what is true for all of us is the same thing that was true for the Israelites. God hears your groaning. He remembers his promises that he made to you. He sees you, he hears you, and God knows. He knows. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that even when from, per, from our perspective that the world seems to be spinning out of control, that that is just our perspective, that that is not actually true. And we can look at this story of your people coming out of slavery in Egypt. And even though your name is hardly mentioned, your hands are all over it. Everything you did, that you brought everything, good and bad, to be good for them and to bring you glory. Father, I pray for all of us, whatever season of life we're in, if we're in one of stress or great sadness or of incredible joy, I pray that we would realize this is all a part of a plan that you're orchestrating, and so we can know that life is not out of control, but that you have the whole wide world in your hands. In your name I pray.